I would like to take a moment before this episode airs to thank you fans for waiting so patiently for the next episode of the podcast. I decided to take a hiatus for a couple weeks to enjoy the summer with my family. Living in the Midwest, we only have great summer weather for a very short window of time. After the hiatus for vacation, I ended up coming down with a sinus infection, which put me out of commission for a short time. After which, I ended up having minor surgery, which also delayed me from releasing a new episode while I healed. So thank you for your understanding and patience, and from now on I should be able to release a new episode every other week as per usual. Now on with the show. This podcast deals with true crime. I will be speaking frankly and openly about crimes such as murder, rape, and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. The 1960s was a decade defined by the counterculture movement. During an era of political discourse, the rise of the civil rights movement, and the intensification of the United States' involvement in the Vietnam War, protests both peaceful and radical sprung up all over the country, mostly spurred on by college students and the youth of America at the time, whose overlapping theme was make love, not war, and a cry for peace and harmony. Although noble in their goals, by the end of the decade and into the early 1970s, the writing on the wall for the hippie generation was that their cause was doomed. Hunter S. Thompson wrote of the decline of the 1960s, quote, There was a madness in any direction, at any hour. If not across the bay, then up the Golden Gate or down the 101 to Los Altos or La Honda. You could strike sparks anywhere. There was a fantastic universal sense that whatever we were doing was right and that we were winning. And that, I think, was the handle. That sense of inevitable victory over the forces of old and evil. Not in any mean or military sense. We didn't need that. Our energy would simply prevail. There was no point in fighting, on our side or theirs. We had the momentum. We were riding the crest of a high and beautiful wave. So now, less than five years later... You can go up the steep hill in Las Vegas and look west, and with the right kind of eyes you can almost see the high water mark, that place where the wave finally broke and rolled back, unquote. There are many who point fingers to what was the decline of the peace and love movement of the 1960s. Some say it was lessening of the United States' involvement in the Vietnam War, with the last troops being evacuated from Saigon in 1975. Some also say that it stems from the popularity of cocaine use during the 1970s as opposed to marijuana and psychedelics which were common during the 1960s. 
Some would also say that the death of the 60s happened at Altamont. Altamont was a concert put on by the Rolling Stones in December of 1969. It was supposed to be the Woodstock of the West. The Rolling Stones hired Hell's Angels to be the security for the concert, a decision that would prove to be fatal. By the end of the concert, four people were dead. Meredith Hunter, who was killed by Hell's Angels, two accidental deaths that occurred because of hit and runs, and an LSD-induced drowning in an irrigation canal. The festival was a disaster. Yet I think that the decline of the counterculture movement happened several months earlier. The song that you heard at the beginning of this podcast is the Beach Boys song, Never Learn Not to Love, a song from their 1969 album, 2020. Although the song is credited on the album to Dennis Wilson, the majority of the song was written by someone else, a person who I believe took this as the last straw, feeling shunned by the music industry in Hollywood. A charismatic ex-convict who amassed a following of youths and plied them with LSD and stories of the apocalypse, who used his skills as a pimp as well as Beatles lyrics to turn these young minds into devotees, and when faced with the reality of his failure to become famous, ultimately persuaded them to murder in his name. Tonight on the True Crime Truckers podcast, I bring you the case of Charles Manson and the Manson family. Did you tell the women to do their witchy things? I said, if you're going to do something, leave something witchy. Just like I would tell you, if you're going to do something, do it well. And leave something witchy. Leave a sign to let the world know that you were there. Have a good day. Do you want the world to let you alone and turn away? Listen, listen. I broke no law. Try to understand that. I broke no law. I didn't step out of line with God, and I didn't step out of line with the man. I did not break the law. Now, I told those people the same thing that the United States president would tell them. The only way that you can dispensate life and death is you have to be willing to give yourself to that cause. You can't fight a revolution. You can't do anything unless you're willing to submit yourself to that cause. Charles Manson was born on November 12, 1934, to 16-year-old Kathleen Maddox at the University of Cincinnati Academic Health Center in Cincinnati, Ohio. He was first named No Name Maddox. Within weeks, he was called Charles Miles Maddox. Manson's biological father appears to have been Colonel Walker Henderson Scott Sr. of Catlersburg, Kentucky against whom Kathleen Maddox filed a paternity suit that resulted in an agreed judgment in 1937. 
Manson may have never known his biological father. Scott worked intermittently in local mills and also had a local reputation as a con artist. He allowed Maddox to believe that he was an army colonel, although Colonel was merely his given name. When Maddox told Scott she was pregnant, he told her he had been called away on army business. After several months, she realized he had no intention of returning. In August 1934, before Manson's birth, Maddox married William Eugene Manson, whose occupation was listed on Charles' birth certificate as laborer at a dry-cleaning business. Maddox went on drinking sprees for days at a time with her brother, Luther, leaving Charles with a variety of babysitters. They were divorced on April 30, 1937, when a court accepted Manson's charge of, quote, gross negligent duty, unquote. On August 1, 1939, Maddox and Luther's girlfriend, Julia Vickers, spent the evening drinking with Frank Martin, a new acquaintance who appeared to be wealthy. Maddox and Vickers decided to rob him, and Maddox phoned her brother to help. They were incompetent thieves and were found and arrested within hours. At the trial seven weeks later, Luther was sentenced to ten years in prison, and Kathleen was sentenced to five years. Manson was placed in the home of his aunt and uncle in McMechan, West Virginia. His mother was paroled in 1942. Manson later characterized the first weeks after she returned from prison as the happiest time in his life. Manson's family moved to Charleston, West Virginia, where Manson continually played truant and his mother spent her evenings drinking. She was arrested for grand larceny but not convicted. After moving to Indianapolis, Maddox started attending Alcoholics Anonymous meetings where she met an alcoholic named Lewis, whom she married in August of 1943. As well as constantly playing truant, Manson began stealing from stores and his home. In 1947, Maddox looked for a temporary foster home for Manson, but she was unable to find a suitable one. She decided to send him to the Jabalt School for Boys in Terre Haute, Indiana, a school for male delinquents run by a Catholic priest. Manson soon fled home to his mother, but she took him back to the school. He spent Christmas 1947 in McMechan at his aunt and uncle's house, where he was caught stealing a gun. Manson returned to Jabalt, but ran away to Indianapolis ten months later. Instead of returning to his mother, he rented a room and supported himself by burglaring stores at night. He was eventually caught, and a sympathetic judge sent him to Boys Town, a juvenile facility in Omaha, Nebraska. After four days, he and a student named Blackie Nielsen stole a car and somehow attained a gun. They used it to rob a grocery store and a casino as they made their way to the home of Nielsen's uncle in Peoria, Illinois. Nielsen's uncle was a professional thief, and when the boys arrived, he apparently took them on as apprentices. Manson was arrested two weeks later during a nighttime raid on a Peoria store. In the investigation that followed, he was linked to two earlier armed robberies. He was sent to the Indiana Boys School, a strict reform school. He later claimed that the students raped him with the encouragement of a staff member. Manson developed a self-defense technique he later called the, quote, insane game. Where he was physically unable to defend himself, he would screech, grimace, and wave his arms to convince aggressors that he was insane. After a number of failed attempts, he escaped with two other boys in February 1951. The three escapees were attempting to drive to California in stolen cars when they were arrested in Utah. They had robbed several filling stations along the way. Driving a stolen car across state lines is a federal crime that violates the Dyer Act. 
Manson was sent to Washington, D.C.'s National Training School for Boys. On arrival, he was given an aptitude test. He was illiterate, and his IQ was 109. The national average was 100. His caseworker deemed him aggressively antisocial. On a psychiatrist's recommendation, Manson was transferred in October 1951 to National Bridge Honor Camp, a minimum security institution. His aunt visited him and told administrators she would let him stay at her house and would help him find work. Manson had a parole hearing scheduled for February 1952. However, in January, he was caught raping a boy at Knife Point. Manson was transferred to the Federal Reformatory in Petersburg, Virginia. There he committed a further eight serious disciplinary offenses, three involving homosexual acts. He was then moved to Maximum Security Reformatory at Chillicothe, Ohio, where he was expected to remain until his release on his 21st birthday in November of 1955. Good behavior led to an early release in May of 1954 to live with his aunt and uncle in McMechan. In January 1955, Manson married a hospital waitress named Rosalie Jean Willis. Around October, about three months after he and his pregnant wife arrived in Los Angeles in a car he had stolen in Ohio, Manson was again charged with federal crime for taking a vehicle across state lines. After a psychiatric evaluation, he was given five years probation. Manson's failure to appear at a Los Angeles hearing on the identical charge filed in Florida resulted in his March 1956 arrest in Indianapolis. His probation was revoked and he was sentenced to three years imprisonment at Terminal Island, San Pedro, California. While Manson was in prison, Rosalie gave birth to their son, Charles Manson Jr., during his first year at Terminal Island. Manson received visits from Rosalie and his mother, who were now living together in Los Angeles. In March 1957, when the visits from his wife ceased, his mother informed him that Rosalie was living with another man. Less than two weeks before a scheduled parole hearing, Manson tried to escape by stealing a car. He was given five years probation, and his parole was denied. Manson received five years parole in September 1958, the same year in which Rosalie received a decree of divorce. By November, he was pimping a 16-year-old girl and was receiving additional support from a girl with wealthy parents. In September of 1959, he pleaded guilty to a charge of attempting to cash a forged U.S. Treasury check, which he claimed to have stolen from a mailbox. He received a 10-year suspended sentence and probation after a young woman named Leona, who had an arrest record for prostitution, made a tearful plea before the court that she and Manson were deeply in love and would marry if Charles was free. Before the year's end, the woman did marry Manson, possibly so she would not be required to testify against it. Manson took Leona and another woman to New Mexico for the purposes of prostitution, resulting in him being held and questioned for violating the Mann Act. Though he was released, Manson correctly suspected that the investigation had not ended. When he disappeared in violation of his probation, a bench warrant was issued. An indictment for the violation of the Mann Act followed in April of 1960. When one of the women was arrested for prostitution, Manson was arrested in June in Laredo, Texas, and was returned to Los Angeles for violating his probation on the check-cashing charge. He was ordered to serve his 10-year sentence. Manson spent a year trying unsuccessfully to appeal the revocation of his probation. In July of 1961, he was transferred from the Los Angeles County Jail to the United States Penitentiary at McNeil Island, Washington. 
There, he took guitar lessons from Baker Caprice gang leader Alvin Creepy Caprice and obtained from another inmate a contact name of someone at Universal Studios in Hollywood, Phil Kaufman. According to the Jeff Ginn's 2013 biography of Manson, his mother moved to Washington State to be closer to him during his McNeil Island incarceration, working nearby as a waitress. Although the Mann Act charge had been dropped, the attempt to cash the Treasury check was still a federal offense. Manson's September 1961 annual review noted him as a, quote, tremendous drive to call attention to himself, unquote. An observation echoed in September of 1964. In 1963, Leona was granted a divorce. During the process, she alleged that she and Manson had a son, Charles Luther. According to an unpopular urban legend, Manson auditioned unsuccessfully for the Monkees in late 1965. This is refuted by the fact that Manson was still incarcerated at McNeil Island at that time. In June of 1966, Manson was sent for a second time to Terminal Island in preparation for early release. By the time of his release day on March 21, 1967, he had spent more than half of his 32 years in prison and other institutions. This was mainly because he had broken federal laws. Federal sentences were, and remain, much more severe than state sentences for many of the same offenses. Telling the authorities that prison had become his home, he requested permission to stay. After about two weeks of taking these drugs and, and becoming just void of, of conscience, uh, Manson said, hey, I want you to go out and kill these people, to go up to this place and, and uh, kill everyone that is there. And uh, he gave us the, the orders, orders the, the directions, uh, uh, even though we knew where we were going, he gave us all the directions of what to do after we got there. And, and, and what not to do, and told the girls to write something witchy on the, on the uh, uh, walls. And here I was, a naive uh, Texas boy, uh, without a conscience of, of really right and wrong, thinking that the world was going to come to the end tomorrow. And uh, going on this journey over to this house, to kill whoever was in the house, not knowing how many people were there, who they were, uh, what they looked like, whether they were men, women, didn't know anything about this. Uh, going to this house uh, very reluctantly. My conscience hadn't completely uh, dwindled down to nothing at that time. Uh, but uh, uh, it was very close to it because I didn't have enough to say, hey, I'm not going to do this. Charles Denton, a.k.a. Tex Watson, was born in Farmersville, Texas on December 2, 1945, and grew up in nearby Copeville. He was the youngest of three children. Tex grew up apparently attending the Copeville Methodist Church. In high school, he was an honor student and athlete, 
and worked as the editor of the school paper. In September of 1964, Watson moved to Denton, Texas to attend the University of North Texas, where he joined a fraternity. In January of 1967, Watson began working at Braniff International as a baggage handler. Using free airline tickets to travel, he visited a fraternity brother in Los Angeles, where he became interested in the psychedelic and music lifestyle of the late 1960s. What happened that night you all went to Sharon Tate's house? What really happened? Well, I remember getting in the car with Tex and Tex Watson and my other two co-defendants, three co-defendants actually. Um, and before I ever got in the car, Tex and I had our own special little stash of uh, cocaine. You know, I think it was cocaine or methadrine, I'm not sure which. We were the speed and we both snorted some speed and got in the car. We were very, very wired. And we drove to the house uh, with instructions to kill everyone in the house. From Charlie? Yeah. Um, and not just that, but that we were instructed to go all the way down every house, hit every house on the... On the street? On the street, yes. And kill all the people kill in all those the houses. people in all those houses. Susan Denise Atkins was born in San Gabriel, California, the second of three children. Susan Atkins grew up in Northern California. According to her, her parents, Jeanette and Edward Johnny Atkins, were alcoholics. Her mother died of cancer in 1963. Over the next three years, Susan's life was disrupted by a gradual breakup of her family, frequent relocations, and her leaving home to live independently. Until she was 13 years old, Atkins and her family lived in a middle-class home in Cambrin Park area of San Jose, California. She was described by those who knew her as quiet, self-conscious girl who belonged to her school's glee club and a local church choir. Two weeks before her mother was hospitalized for the final time, Susan arranged for members of a church choir to sing Christmas carols under her bedroom window. After Jeanette Atkins' death, relatives were asked to help look after Susan and her two brothers. Edward Atkins eventually moved to Los Banos, California with Susan and her younger brother Stephen. When he found work at the San Luis Dam construction project, Edward left the two children behind to fend for themselves. Susan took a job her junior year in high school to support herself and Stephen. Atkins had been an average student in Lee High School in San Jose, but her grades deteriorated when she entered Los Banos High School. During this time, she lived with various relatives. In 1967, Atkins met Manson when he played guitar at the house where she was living with several friends. When the house was raided several weeks later by the police and Atkins was left homeless, Manson invited her to join his group, who were embarking on a summer road trip in a converted school bus painted completely black. She was nicknamed Sadie May Glutz by Manson and a man who was creating a fake ID for her at the time. I remember looking at his face and it was just reminding me of the figure of Christ. And I remember looking up in the sky and realizing that uh, Charlie was <laughs> definitely the devil. He was not uh, this wonderful man that I was led to believe. 
Linda Darlene Druin was born in Bedford, Maine, and was raised in the New England town of Milford, New Hampshire. Her father, Rosary Druin, was a construction worker of French-Canadian ancestry. Her mother, Joyce Taylor, was a homemaker. They struggled financially in a working-class home. Her parents often did not get along, and her father abandoned the family when she was still a young child. Both of her parents remarried in a short time. Later, her father moved to Miami, Florida. She was the eldest child, and her mother Joyce was remarked that so many younger children and stepchildren to take care for, she was not able to devote the necessary attention to her teenage daughter. Quote, I didn't have time to listen to her problems. A lot of what happened to Linda is my fault, unquote. Linda was described by friends, neighbors, and teachers as intelligent, a good student, but a, quote, starry-eyed romantic. She was known as kind and shy, but forced to grow up too soon. She dropped out of high school and ran away from home at the age of 16 due to increasing problems with her stepfather, Jake Bird, whom she claimed mistreated her and her mother. Linda headed to the western states, quote, looking for God. At the age of 16, she married Robert Peasley, but divorced a short time later. She briefly moved to Miami and tried to reconnect with her father, who was bartending, but they drifted apart before long. She then traveled to Boston and remarried, and gave birth to a daughter in 1968. When her second marriage to Armenian-American Robert Kasabian began to sour, Linda and her baby daughter Tanya returned to New Hampshire to live with Linda's mother. Later, Robert Kasabian contacted Linda and invited her to meet him in Los Angeles. He wanted her to join him and a friend, Charles Blackbeard Melton, on a sailing trip to South America. Linda, who was hoping for reconciliation, returned to Los Angeles to live with Robert in the Los Angeles hippie hangout of Topanga Canyon. By the time she had become pregnant with her second child, Linda was feeling rejected by her husband, who had left behind for the South American trip. A friend of Melton, Catherine Gypsy Cher, described an idyllic ranch where a group of hippies were establishing a, quote, hole-in-the-earth paradise to escape the anticipated social turmoil. The whole sounded like the Hopi legends that she had read about as a girl, and Kasabian was intrigued. In 1969, she decided against attending the 4th of July Malibu Lovin', and instead, daughter Tanya in tow followed Cher to the Spawn Ranch in Chapsworth area of Los Angeles, where she met Manson. Every day I wake up and know that I'm a destroyer of the most precious thing, which is life. And living with that is the most difficult thing of all. And I do that because that's what I deserve, is to wake up every morning and know that. Every once in a while I get letters from children. And um, they seem to think that what we did is all right. There is nothing, nothing that we did that is all right. Nothing. Patricia Kremwinkle was born in Los Angeles, California, to an insurance salesman father and a homemaker mother. She attended University High School and then Westchester High School, both in the Los Angeles area. Patricia was often bullied at school by other students, suffered from low self-esteem, and was frequently teased for being overweight and for an excessive growth of body hair caused by an endocrine condition. After her parents divorced, 17-year-old Krenwinkel remained in Los Angeles with her father until she graduated from Westchester High School. 
For a time, she taught Cachism, a Roman Catholic religious instruction, and considered becoming a nun. She decided to attend the Jesuit College Spring Hill College in Mobile, Alabama. Within one semester, however, Patricia dropped out and moved back to California. Moving into her half-sister's apartment in Manhattan Beach, she found an office job as a processing clerk. She met Charles Manson in Manhattan Beach in 1967, along with Lynette Fromm and Mary Brunner. In later interviews, Kramwinkel stated that she had slept with Manson the first night they met and that he was the first person who told her that she was beautiful. Mesmerized by Manson's charisma and starved for attention, she decided to go to San Francisco with him and the other girls, leaving behind her apartment, car, and last paycheck. next episode, we will go over Charles Manson's formation of the Manson family, as well as his introduction to Dennis Wilson and the Beach Boys, his attempt to break into the music industry, as well as his family's early crimes. As always, you can contact me at truecrimetruckerpodcast at gmail.com or join the Facebook group at True Crime Truckers Podcast. You can also visit my website at www ageofradio.org backslash true crime trucker backslash. Also, if you would like to donate to the show and get yourself a true crime truckers podcast sticker, go to www.patreon.com backslash true crime truckers podcast. You can also find me on Instagram at michael.prit81. I will return in two weeks, so until then, stay safe.